Hi, I'm Lisa Kennedy and you're listening to The Bra and the Brave. This podcast celebrates the creative and the courageous. I am fascinated by those who are talented, forward-thinking and inquisitive. Sharing their stories, wisdom and everything in between, The Bra and the Brave is about people and their passions. So on to today's episode. Welcome to another episode of The Bra and the Brave. Lisa Hertwig is passionate about life and despite battling with cystic fibrosis, her positive attitude and zest for life was unwavering, fueled by the hope of the double lung transplant she so desperately needed, with a lung function that had never exceeded 30% of its capacity and eventually plummeting to as low as 14%. The news of a potential donor in 2016 was what Lisa, her family and her friends had been waiting for. Nearly three years on, Lisa is ensuring she doesn't waste a single second of the life she's been afforded to live post-transplant. And now she makes it her mission to educate and inspire through her honest and motivational public speaking engagements about organ donation. I'm delighted to bring you this episode. Lisa is an example to us all that positive thinking, straight talking and living life to the full is the way forward. Oh, and her lung function now? Well, it's 82%. Enjoy. So I am here with the lovely Lisa Hertwig and first and foremost I guess I better explain how I know Lisa which makes me feel very old because <laughs> I know Lisa because I used to choreograph a dance group in Lisa's high school and Lisa was at school at the time and now Lisa is like a fully fledged adult <laughs> and um this podcast is about people and their passions and I discovered Lisa's passion online a number of years ago. She has a very interesting story to tell and um, a very inspiring story to tell and I know she tells it on a regular basis so she's a total pro at this. So thank you so much first and foremost for agreeing to do this podcast Lisa. Can you tell us your incredible story? You can start wherever you like. So um, when I was born my mum knew that there was something not quite right with me as a child um, I was losing a lot of weight despite eating a lot um, and I had breathing difficulties so she kept taking me to the GP and the GP kept saying no you're just an over anxious mother it's likely that you know your kids just got a bit of a cold or something wow. turned out I was diagnosed at five and a half months with cystic fibrosis which is a life limiting illness and my mum and dad when I was growing up they were quite honest with me Hmm. saying you know um if you try and do as much of your treatments as you as you can take your medication um because your life might be short and throughout growing up even into my teenage years i lost a lot of friends with the same illness as me so i did realize the seriousness of it i did have from a, a young age the outlook on life that life is short let's enjoy lots of things and try to not let little things bother me but as I got older, my health deteriorated and um, I knew it was likely that I would need a lung transplant. That is what happens to a lot of people with cystic fibrosis, okay. which I'll call CF for short. Mm-hmm. So around the age of 20, I started being assessed at Newcastle Freeman's Hospital and they had to decide whether or not I could be listed for a double lung transplant. Basically, my lung function had never been above 30%. Um, so... With cystic fibrosis, what happens is you get reoccurring chest infections and then over time, 
they damage your lungs and cause scarring and your lung function does go down. Mm. The chest infections are treated with intravenous antibiotics. Um, you know, your average oral antibiotic wouldn't mm-hmm. really fight um, the bacteria that CFs have on their lungs. We also have other complications um, with our joints. We can have diabetes, digestion problems. We need to take food uh, tablets every time we eat. So a lot of things with CF is we can look quite healthy on the outside, but on the inside there's a lot going on, mm-hmm. a lot of seriousness. So I went for a few assessments at Newcastle and the first couple of times they kept telling me that I was still too well, which what they try and look for is the window of opportunity where you are not too ill, because then you mm-hmm. wouldn't survive the operation, but you're not too well. Um, because obviously a transplant is a very serious operation, mm-hmm. so they only want to do it if it's really necessary. Yeah. And also, because there's such a shortage of organ donors, they wouldn't want to just use a pair of lungs okay. on the off chance that they wouldn't work, wouldn't okay. be successful. Yeah. So on my third assessment, that's when they told me, um, right, now it's time to list you for a transplant. And I was the age of, I want to say 21. Um, and by that point, I was using a manual wheelchair and I was on oxygen 24-7. So I knew that the time was coming to be listed for a transplant and the way that worked was I had to have my mobile phone on all the time because the hospital would just ring me and say, look, we've got lungs available. Wow. So my phone had to be on all the time and it was kind of a daunting thing because you never want your battery to run out or lose signal. Um, so I waited a total of three and a half years for my lungs which is considerably a long time. Mm-hmm. But because I'm quite small, there was a chance that I was maybe waiting on lungs from a teenager or a child. Ah, I'm right, only okay. four foot, 11 and a half. <laughs> that um, half is very important. It is, that, I say that all the time. <laughs> um, and I've got a rare blood type and your tissue type's got to match. So you've got all those things to consider. So that's why I did wait a number of years. I've got two false calls, which means they call you they say, we think we've got a match for you. Mm-hmm. You go down to Newcastle in an ambulance. They do tests on you to make sure you're well enough, as well as looking at the deceased organs mm-hmm. to make sure the organs are healthy enough to be used. But both times the surgeon came into my room whilst I was all gowned up and said, really sorry, Lisa, but these lungs, um, I've got emphysema, so we, we can't use them. Oh, my goodness. Put your clothes back on, you go back home, oh, and you just wait on the phone ringing again. The first time I decided to tell everybody that I was on my way to Newcastle, the second time I didn't because after the first false call didn't go ahead, it was like I was grieving. Can I imagine? It was, and every time yeah. someone bumped in, into me in the street and said, oh, I heard you, that it didn't, it didn't work or you didn't get your transplant, I would just burst That's into tears. Because yeah. um, I always kept thinking, will I get another yeah. chance? Will this call come again? Because as the months were going by, every single task was becoming more of a struggle. My mum was my carer, still mm-hmm. lived independently as much yeah. as I could, but my mum would be my carer, so when I did have really bad infections, my mum would wash me, she would dress me, she would make my meals, She at times she would have to look after the cat. So from using oxygen, I also had a manual wheelchair and an electric scooter. So if I was out with friends, they would tend to put my manual wheelchair into the car, mm-hmm. help me out um, with my oxygen because I had a, a cylinder okay. to carry everywhere yeah, with yeah. me. 
but then if I wanted to go out myself, that was when I decided to use the electric scooter. So for a while, I liked my shopping to get delivered to the house. Okay. But then I thought, no, I'm missing out on getting out there and seeing all the bargains and, you know, so I thought, jumping my scooter, I would go down the town. And then there was several times that this happened, I would end up buying bottles of juice, tins, potatoes, and then because the wheelchair was so heavy, the battery would pack in on the way home. (laughs) Phone my mum and I said, mum, can you please come round with the car? She was like, you've not done it again. And it was just me being just so that stubborn. Independence. And being uh-huh. like, no, I will get everything. I was like a pack horse. I would pile this scooter with all my, my messages. But that's just been your attitude from day dot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Just wanting to live your life. Just do everything. I just want to do and everything And my mum was like, yourself. why not just go down the town the next day and get the rest of the stuff? And I'm like, well, I could have a, a really bad day tomorrow. Yeah. So You're trying to live for the day. Exactly. Not, worried, not thinking about tomorrow. Not th- exactly, not yeah, thinking yeah. about next week or... And that makes a lot of sense mm-hmm. when you explain what Even exactly as, you were going yeah, through. Yeah, things as little as shopping. That was uh-huh. my mindset all the time. The scooter, I could get on the buses and get yeah. on the trains. Okay. So if I felt like I wanted to go further afield, sometimes I'd go on the train. You know, you just say to the, the train service, they put a ramp out. Okay. And I'd meet friends in like Edinburgh or Glasgow, mm-hmm. go to concerts or whatever. Um, I also used to go clubbing in my wheelchair with mm-hmm. oxygen on some nightclubs don't have very good like access so there was a few local nightclubs that the bouncers would carry me up in my wheelchair so I could get get up there and not miss out yeah, of course. do everything that somebody in their 20s would be yeah. doing which you have every right um, to I didn't, be doing yeah I didn't mind that I had oxygen on my face and that people stared or anything like that I think it actually got to my friends at times friends would sometimes maybe comment mm-hmm. see them over there they're staring and I'm like they're probably just trying to get their head around why would somebody so young be struggling to yeah. breathe normally that's an, an old age pensioner uh-huh. or whatever might need oxygen mm-hmm. I says they probably are just trying to work your it friends out. would want to be defending you you know and uh-huh. where I certainly wasn't you weren't offended. feeling like a victim no nothing like that no. at all um, I would be having too much of a good time <laughs> to be bothered about anybody else so yeah even though my life was really restricted I still went to music festivals a concerts clubbing I still tried to do everything that everybody else was doing even if that meant a day in bed one day a day mm-hmm. the next where do you think that kind of attitude came from I mean it sounds like your parents were very open and honest with you mm-hmm. from a young age which obviously then built up kind of armour almost maybe of like I know what I've got here this there's no it. like there's no soft uh, exactly mm-hmm. so do you think that's what they, it they never came should have from? Uh, definitely. Uh-huh. Um, I know a lot of people with cystic fibrosis don't have the mindset that I do. You can still get the bit of rebel where they don't want to take their meds. Well, nobody else has got this illness, so I'm not acting as if I've got an illness. Okay. But when I was at high school, in first year, I stood up in front of my English class and said, look, I'm, I'll need to go out uh, for my physio mm-hmm. one period a day, mm-hmm. um, like physiotherapy on my chest. You might hear me coughing in the classroom, here's why. And then because I was so open, mm-hmm. I never really got bullied or anything yeah. like that. Um, but I, like like I say, it definitely came from my parents. Honesty was the mm-hmm. best policy. Saying how it was, and then it was up to me how I wanted to approach life. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I've always kind of kind of had that kind of outlook. That's what I remember of you from like being part of the dance group, mm-hmm. like just having this brilliant energy, just always being in a great mood mm-hmm. and I probably didn't realise the extent of your illness probably because yeah. I, you know, I was only in the school once a week for an hour or mm-hmm. whatever um, and to know 
a snippet of what you've went through uh-huh. is just like that's astounding that you, you've always had that attitude uh-huh. to just get on with it. And like if, if, if I was dancing with yourself in the group, if I was tired or uh-huh. struggling, I would just tell you. I would just say, I need to sit out. Then looking at my peers and thinking, I need to, well, they're all yeah, dancing, I no, need to keep up with them. Yeah. I knew if I done too much, that then I would be yeah. well, in a lot of trouble, know, basically. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. um, so it was it was known how to I respected your, your illness and what you were dealing with and, and tackled it head on, but, you know, still lived your life. Mm-hmm took part in everything that I enjoyed. Totally. And if I didn't want to do Sam, I would tell them. Uh-huh. I would tell them still. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was quite open like that. Which I think at times they, they respected. Well, maybe of course. everybody else wouldn't have got away with it, but well, that, for some reason I did. <laughs> I think honesty, like you say, is the best policy and you were obviously, like everybody respected that you were living with this on a daily basis, but you were still not lying down to it. You were trying to live your life uh-huh. and trying to do the best that you could. Mm-hmm. and not let it hold you back yeah especially you know certainly mentally it's not held you back you know you've done everything you've had that will that strength of character just to, to do it, to do it. Mm-hmm. yeah because I remember when it was always you know your exams are coming up Lisa and when I was in hospital I'd be in for two weeks at a time mm-hmm. um, and I would take the school work in with me he's like come on like you need to study and I said look I said teachers I don't know how long I'm going to be here mm-hmm. so I'm not going to sit, sit with my head in a book I says, on the off chance I'm not going to have a career, I says, when I could boot and join myself. And the teachers would just look at me, right, okay, Lisa, <laughs> right, okay. And I'm like, you can't argue with me. They knew I had a point. Shut that conversation down. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> again, that's just, that's just my honesty. In the hardest and darkest of times, which I can't imagine how many of them there are mm-hmm. that you recall, what, what got you through? Like, obviously, you've had a lot of support from uh-huh. friends, like you say, in your family, but... So it's, it's a mindset thing. Mm-hmm. It's a living in hope and being positive. So every day, even though I knew my life was getting closer to the end and not knowing if this call was coming, for me to feel some sort of comfort, as bizarre as that sounds, I decided to plan my own funeral. Nobody wants to think about death, but death is inevitable. So if I've done everything I've wanted to while I'm living, why would I want it to be the way I want it to be when I'm not here? So when I got put on the transplant list, I said to my mum and dad, just to let you know, I've paid for my plot, I've sorted this, I've sorted that. And my mum was quite upset, but she went, it's something I've wanted to speak to you about, mm-hmm. but never known how to approach, how to approach it. it. And I said, I just don't want that if that time was to come, that through grief, mm-hmm. you're panicking of what song would Lisa want? Would she want buried? Would she want cremated? All those little... You just wanted to ifs, take that worry take from that them. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Um, so knowing that, that that I had that all sorted, that kind of got me through dark times. Um, so what age were you when you did that? 20, 21. Wow. Um, but like, I think because I'd been to other people with CF's funerals as well, mm-hmm. I'd had so many ideas yeah. flying through my mind of yeah, what, yeah. what I would want. To try and be hopeful that my time would come when it was right and those mm-hmm. lungs would come along. And then I always had this phrase where I would say, see when I get my lungs, right? And I would say, I'm going to do that or I'm going to try this. So it became a kind of phrase that me and my friends would use quite a bit. But in saying that, I did have friends who were waiting on transplants and died before they got the call mm-hmm. or someone who'd had a transplant and died within six weeks due to complications. So even though I was saying these positive things, 
I knew that that wasn't necessarily going to be my future. Mm-hmm. But there was times when I eventually, as well, when I got put on what, what was a ventilator. So it was a ventilator that I just slept with at night. Okay. It's like a big massive mask that kind yeah. of pushed the air in because not only did I struggle to take oxygen in, mm-hmm. my body, because, well, because my lungs were failing, it didn't get rid of the carbon dioxide. Oh, right, so this okay. machine, whilst I slept, and I would have it on sometimes during the day, mm-hmm. but I remember because I was at the end stage of CF, is what they call it, this is when the anxiety did start to creep in. Mm-hmm. And it was more of the thought of, not I was scared to die, I just didn't want to die, because I loved living. So during that time, I started to see a psychologist who is part of the CF hospital team. Mm. And this lady, I would I would sometimes go to Edinburgh to have like an hour appointment with her, or she would be quite happy to phone me. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I wasn't necessarily discussing death or my illness, but general things, family issues or friend problems. And just to try and help um, combat those. But also, I wanted to make everything so perfect for my family and my friends. So when I seen them struggling with my deterioration, Mm -hmm. I was basically going to my psychologist and saying, how can I make this easier for them? Because you're taking that all on. Uh Uh-huh. I was trying to be so brave for yeah, everybody else. Of course. So I wanted to make sure that I know mental health is such a um what's well, more spoken about now. But I do believe that me seeing that psychologist regularly helped keep me in a better place. Um and I know some people would probably say, Oh well I don't need to speak to a psychologist because I'm not dying, right? But I believe that for whatever reason, big or small, it's so beneficial. Everybody needs to we all have mental health uh-huh. and we all have to look to after it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Definitely. Um, and there was one, not like a a programme, but something that this um, psychologist had done before. Okay. So it was like a book that she made. Mm-hmm. A bit like what you're doing with myself just now. Mm-hmm. It was recorded. Okay. Um, she had all these questions about my life, about things that I'd achieved, messages I would want to leave behind, um, and made it into like a little booklet all of right, cool. everything that she okay. spoke and everything that I had replied. Yeah. And then I could choose, if I pass away, who got... Wow. This, like, kind of, this is your life book. How did and you it, feel about making that? I loved it. Did you? I absolutely loved it. Um, because it was nice, like, I could look back on my life and talk about childhood memories. Yeah. And things that, like, so, like, advice. So, like, if I, if my friends were to say have a difficult day if I wasn't here, you know that way where you go, oh, what would someone say if they were still here? Hmm. They were the sort of things that I was putting in this book. So if they were having a tough time, they could go back and read it. Wow. Which I still have now. Yeah. But fortunately, they've never had to be put to use. Absolutely. <laughs> here, here. But they're the sort of things that, the t- tools that Yeah, I just, use. I guess it would put some power back in your hands. You must have Take felt control. a lot of the time, like, your life wasn't in your hands. Totally. And, you know, so to have any sort of control back nice. must have been really, you know, great for you. You know, Like, your mental health again. Mm-hmm. Just to say, like, I've, I've got the reins here. Uh-huh. I get to see what happens. I couldn't control my physical health. No. Not really. But like you say, if I control, could control my mental health, then, mm. then that was what I kind of yeah. run with, so to speak. Yeah, and enjoy your life while you, you're living it. Mm-hmm. You know, Definitely. every day. Aye. What does life look like now? Life is very bright. Very, um, there's not a weight on my shoulders. And the way that I describe waking up in the morning mm-hmm. is like butterflies in my stomach every day. Like, 
the way it might feel for a child on Christmas morning. Oh my goodness. Because I wake up and I think I had a perfect sleep because that was something I never used to experience. Mm -hmm. When I used to eat before, um, I'd eat very small portions and feel full up and then struggle to breathe because it would be like pressing on my diaphragm. So food wasn't enjoyable, sleep wasn't enjoyable. So now that I've had a good sleep, I can't wait to eat breakfast and then say, right, what have I got Mm -hmm. planned for today? And I've always got something planned for Mm -hmm. every day. Um, So life is very busy. Um, I'm a support worker now. Um, I do a lot of public speaking on organ donation. Um, I'm rather into my fitness. Again, something that I really struggled with when I was younger. So I'm enjoying jogging, weight training, um, what else have I done? I've gave snowboarding a try. Oh wow! Something I'd never experienced yeah. before. Trampoline parks. Cool. Something I couldn't do even as a child. <laughs> yeah. On bouncy castles. <laughs> Sometimes I'm kind of like I know I'm only four foot eleven and a half, but I'm like an a, a adult child <laughs> that's like let's experience these Amazing. things that were very difficult when I was uh-huh. younger. Well, the last two years I've competed in the transplant games, which is what the British transplant games. Okay. Are. Anybody that's at the transplant um, can compete. It's a different city every year. Okay. First year it was Glasgow, and last year it was Birmingham, and you win medals. It's kind of like along the lines of Olympics or okay, Olympic yeah, games. Yeah. You don't actually have to be any good at the sport. It's all about taking part and Amazing. finding out other people's stories. Yes. Um, I'm not doing that this year because it's in Wales. So it's a bit further afield yeah. for me. Mm-hmm. But I'm hoping this year to go and volunteer in South Africa. There's a charity there where you can do all sorts of different okay. volunteering things. So I've had my vaccines uh-huh. to go away. I'm just in the process of booking that. Amazing. Um, I've got a 5K booked in Edinburgh yes. to try. So you were out a run today. Out a run this morning, yeah. <laughs> the podcast. But make a shame. <laughs> <laughs> this year I'm also planning on tackling Ben Lomond. Last year I done Ben Cluch, which is a local hill. Okay. And the year before that, I'd undermine it. So every year, I'm looking for a slightly higher mm-hmm. challenge, um, more of a peak. And I get like about a dozen friends to join me. Um, some are pro hill walkers, okay. some aren't. Yep. Um, so there's always a nice mix. So yeah, Ben Lomond's scheduled for June this year. Mm-hmm. So I like to set myself new challenges. Yeah. Anything that comes into my mind and I think, would I be willing to give that a go? Then you do it. And even if it's something my friends are saying, oh, I'm not really up for that, I'm the type that I'll do it myself. I'm quite happily, <laughs> happily go along and entertain myself or whatever it might be. I don't want to miss out. <laughs> That's amazing. That's fantastic. And in terms of your public speaking, was that something that you were doing before your transplant or is that came from, the, mm-hmm. you know, having the transplant? And So I did do a couple of um, public speaking things mm-hmm. and that it wasn't really planned it was just a couple people had approached me okay one was um a college lecturer mm-hmm. for student nurses and another one was um the butterfly trust is a charity that helps people with yes. fibrosis mm-hmm. they had asked me to come along to speak to new volunteers okay just to give people a bit a better understanding of cf um but definitely post transplant i realized there was there was a market okay for, right okay certainly locally yeah yeah, yeah. um and so I just kind of put it on my Facebook page, you know, would anybody like to book me in, Yeah. <laughs> um, do public speaking, and it's just kind of spiralled from there. So I do, like, church groups, clubs, pub groups, mm-hmm. schools, colleges, 
and is that predominantly you know your story to then encourage people to go on the organ donation list yeah yeah yeah. to consider it yeah or to have that conversation Mm -hmm. i never like to add pressure because if somebody has a belief Mm -hmm. or they don't want to be an organ donor that is their choice but i just try and explain how beneficial it is well i guess if someone's never met someone who's benefit from mm-hmm. from a donation like you have it's maybe just something that they they just don't connect with but then if you're telling your story and going look I'm here uh-huh. because of this and this has totally transformed my life and mm-hmm. allowed me to live my life to the fullest Why will you, you consider it will, yeah. you, will you, you take that time to think about it or have like you say to have that conversation but again like I said before nobody wants to speak about death and I understand that people so the way organisation can work is you could be registered as an organ donor. Okay. But if that time were to come, your next of kin still has the, the overall decision. Wow. So you could be on that register, but through grief, your next of kin could say, nope, you're not donating So they organs. can override that? Oh, yeah. That, so this is... This I does not know that. I know. And I'm pretty sure don't. a lot of people don't know that. So wow. that's why it's quite important that one... To have a conversation. To have the conversation yeah. and to be registered if you want it. Yeah. You don't have to be registered. You could just have that conversation. Yeah. Because it's them that's getting the say, whether that be your parents or okay. your partner or whatever. And anybody at any age can donate. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if someone smokes, I could have had a smoker's lungs. Because at the end of the day, their lungs could still be more healthy than what... Got you. Got you. Um, someone who drinks, you could still donate their liver. Mm-hmm. You know, someone might say... I'll donate everything, but not my liver, because I drink alcohol. That's the that's not up to you to decide. Because <laughs> still look at that. Yeah. There's a lot of things now where they can take organs out. They can treat them in a machine before they then give them that's to the easy, recipient. Uh, but again, this is just to try and increase organ donation mm-hmm. because so many people don't donate, or the organs aren't actually suitable. So as long as people are having that discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, finding out what their loved ones want as well, then I think it can make a lot of things mm. And what easier. have you got out of your public speaking engagements? What has that done for you personally? Well, so a lot of people ask me, so why are you doing the public speaking if you've already got your lungs? Like, why are you not like, doing things that you want to do? And I say, but that life that I lived for three and a half years, there's thousands in the UK that mm-hmm. are living like that. So if I can speak and hopefully make someone else have that conversation then someone may not be suffering certainly for three and a half years like I did mm-hmm. and get their organs a bit quicker Yeah. but for me it's nice to have a conversation with anybody because I'm a people person Yeah. but it's quite interesting as well so if I speak to say to talk to kids in primary school mm-hmm. um, obviously I soften it mm-hmm. slightly but primary school kids ask the best questions. They all just <laughs> come out. So what was it like when you were going to die? What did it feel like? And they just and, and I appreciate that. Uh-huh. Um, you go to teenage kids, and the subject seems a bit more daunting for them to mm-hmm. listen to. And I realised when I was first doing it that I wasn't getting very much back. So at the end, I would say, "Does anybody have any questions?" And they'd look very fearful. Okay. Maybe they didn't want to ask me things in case they offended me mm-hmm. or they'd look silly in front of their peers so what I tried to do was when I put on my slideshow what my life was like before so it would be pictures of me with my oxygen with my ventilator mask um, talking about the medicines that I was on I'd then ask them in groups write down how you think I felt so 
with working groups and then I'd go round and ask them just to give me like one example and they'd say things like lonely, frustrated, like scared yeah. and then when they would give their example I would then elaborate and say right well I did feel like that and here's why mm-hmm. and then then when I would go what my life's like now and say like I'm on a handful of medication and I've got a couple of appointments to have in comparison to wheelchairs and oxygens and feeding tubes and all mm-hmm. of that um, how do you think I feel now? And then they say things like happy, proud, um, excited, free. Like some of the words that they that they give to me, yeah. I haven't even thought about. Mm. But I think no, you're right. I yeah. do actually feel like yeah. that, um, and I always feel quite uplifted because it, it gives me a little reminder of how lucky that I am. The journey that you've been on. Ah, uh-huh. and then if I speak to adults, I don't do the you know working groups kind of thing. I find adults are very much more emotional hmm. because they've maybe thought about death more, they've got kids of their own, so they imagine if that was their child. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like speaking to all ages. Yeah. Every audience seems to have a different approach yeah, and response, which is quite nice. That is. It must be really nice for you, like you say, to give back like all the support that you would have had and still have in your life, I guess. Uh-huh. It, the, the act of giving back and supporting other people and maybe sparking that conversation yeah. is, is food for the soul, isn't it? It definitely you is. Know, definitely. <laughs> what opportunities or experiences have you had throughout this whole journey that you think have kind of moulded you into the person that you are? I mean, obviously we've spoke about everything that you went through but mm-hmm. um has there been any specific experiences you've had post transplant or anything that stuck out for you that just you know you're like this is really a highlight for me or it's molded me as a person or or changed things for me or given me you know a, a different outlook over like overall i think every single thing that i do even on a weekly basis is molding me is changing my thoughts and outlook all the time mm-hmm. um, i never feel like i'm the same person mm-hmm. if that makes sense like I yeah, always go all yeah, the time yeah. but um, experiences would definitely be losing people that mm. have had cystic fibrosis yeah um, and I say that not only am I living for myself and for my donor but I'm living for all the people with CF who haven't had the opportunity that I've had mm-hmm. um, so that I would say that that's what drives me yeah um, more than anything else mm-hmm. is I know some people can get what's known as survivor's guilt. Right, okay. So, of the sense of, like, my friend died when she was 15, so some people can be like, feel bad that okay. they've got this opportunity. Yeah. Well, fortunately, I don't. Why, why me? And why, why, why did they that die? Uh-huh. Blah, blah, blah. But for me, I'm not like that. I'm like, right, this is, I need to do everything for me and for them. Yeah. Um. So, that's like when I do certain experiences, like, I went to Australia with my mum last year. For a month, I've got friends and family over there. I've awesome. never been before. And I found it so emotional. We were queuing up to meet the koalas. And I broke down into tears. And when I say tears, I was... <laughs> and my mum's like, Lisa, you're okay? And all these other t- tourists are staring at me. And I'm I'm not even a huge fan of koalas. <laughs> I never thought... You're more that. of a cat person. Yes. <laughs> but it was at that moment, it kind of got over whelming yeah. that I was in Australia actually there that I was experiencing something that a lot of people would never get the opportunity mm. to and my mum she used to kind of try and be strong she used to keep me together and I was like right I'm fine um, and then the last day that I was there I watched the sunset uh, go down on the beach and 
wrote on the sand to my donor, where I go, you go. Meaning, where I, remember this woman, I know that she was 30 and she was female, that's all I know, but maybe she'd been to Australia before and wanted to go back, maybe she'd always wanted to go. So it's times like that that I'm, well, I think about my donor every day. Of course. But there's times when it's more significant of course. that I have that little moment just to kind of go over everything, yeah. how fortunate And those days where you'd be like, when I get my lungs, when I get my lungs, mm-hmm. like that list of things that you were adding to the, what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And now you're doing all the things. Yeah. And there's so many more things to come that you aren't even on your list yet. That, like you must just wake up every day and go, actually, I could do this. That is exactly what it's like. I'm just looking at your poster here. She believes she could, so she did. Mm-hmm. That pretty much sums you up titty. I know, I got given that um, post-transplant as a gift when I got home. And I, that's exactly that's what perfect. Like. That's that's perfect. Mm-hmm. So what what is next for you? Like I know you're saying you're going to uh, South Africa, which is me. Yeah. Whereabouts in South Africa are you going to? Johannesburg. Oh, cool. So I need to get that booked. I'm uh-huh. still waiting on a few emails coming. Okay. Through. And is if that you... specifically to do with organ donation? No, like no, 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 nothing at all. Oh, right. Okay. Um, it is literally just um a charity that helps underprivileged people. Oh, amazing. Um, you can do things like. Looking after the children, cooking, DIY, garden, uh-huh. you know, like a bit of, bit of yeah, anything. Yeah, anything. Uh-huh. And then yeah, you, you're fortunate enough to go out on a couple of excursions. Mm-hmm. So to be able to see like Go Safari, yeah. that would be amazing as well. But this year I'd also decided that I wanted to give stand up comedy a go. Yes! Did he? I know. That's amazing! So I know some people who yeah. do it always went to see stand up yeah. comics. Like, Small names, big names. Yeah, I've yeah. always loved it. And when I used to feel quite down, um, that's what I used to put on. Okay. Any comics on the telly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, they would really lift my spirits. Uh-huh. Who's I, your favourites? Uh, Billy Conley. Now, I'm very emotionally attached to Billy. Okay. For, but, like, even watching his travel programmes. Uh-huh. Um, so I'd hopefully like to travel Route 66 one day. Yes. And that was Billy that inspired me with that. And obviously he's done the Australian tour. Uh-huh. So I'd like to see more of Australia. I thought, I don't mind speaking in front of people. Uh-huh. Um, I've got some so very funny stories. And I did have a friend, Anders, who passed away six weeks post his transplant. And he done stand-up comedy. Okay. And when you've been through an illness, there is a lot of funny right. I can only imagine. That I think <laughs> would go, quite, um, go down quite well. And I could also share some of my story uh-huh. while That's doing stand-up. That's amazing. You totally need to do that. Um, the <laughs> other thing that I have is... I've got a motorbike, a 125. So it's just my provisional that I've got yeah. with it. But I'm not going to lie, I'm not that confident on it because okay. I'm a bit anxious. But I need, before November this year, I need to set my field test so yeah. I need the provisionals got Yeah, it has to lapse, right, okay. But what I'd love to do is travel um, the coast of Scotland. Again, that's another one that Billy... So is that the North from. Coast 500? Yeah. My husband's doing that. Oh, And his he? motorbike. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a biker. Oh. So he's doing that at the start of June. The, the weather's getting perfect now. Yeah. I need to get my confidence up. Get out of there. There's so much... I've never seen the North of Scotland. Uh-huh. I've hardly seen any of Scotland, actually. I've seen pictures, and yeah. I think, wow, I can't believe that's I know. Scotland. Some of the beaches and stuff is just, Stunning. like, amazing. That's so far this year, so I've got... You're not up to much, Lisa. You're not up to much at all. (laughs) Um, And you never know, I might throw in a few extra things here and there. That is phenomenal. What a story to tell. And you radiate energy and positivity and 
everything that you're doing is just phenomenal for other people. The, yeah. the fact that you're going out there and telling your story will undoubtedly be helping other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and just the act of conversation, opening up and speaking to people, like you were saying, talking about the inevitable, you know, and death and, uh-huh. and, and things that people don't necessarily want to talk about. The fact that you're just putting it out there and saying, guys, we need to talk about this. Mm-hmm. It's inspiring, but also it's going to be helping a lot of people just open up and have that conversation with their family and friends. You're an absolute inspiration. <laughs> I think you're amazing. Thanks. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what you got up to next. So <laughs> I'll be you. at your your first gig for sure. <laughs> I'll, send you, I'll send you a link when yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this, Lisa. No We're now moving on. This is just to get more insight to who Lisa is. Um, so I have just random questions that I've kind of came up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've picked out a few for you specifically today on the list. The first would be, what's your biggest pet peeve? What annoys you? I can't imagine you get annoyed about much. You're such a positive person. See, this is the sort of thing I think you should ask my friends because my friends are like, this, this is the sort of thing that you moan about. Other. So I'm really, at the moment, I think I've got a bit of road rage. Okay. People that don't indicate at roundabouts and they've got me waiting when I've got my life to live <laughs> and I could have been out and they're actually Do going on the and I'm like, get in Lisa's way. You made me stop at this junction for no reason and you're indicating you've this You've got way. this fancy car that doesn't need indicators, I. Exactly. That, so that's probably a, a pet peeve at the moment. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. What's a moment in your past that you would want to relive again? So I think about this often, right? Okay. As hard as the recovery period was uh-huh. for my transplant, because I was sedated in a coma for three weeks. Oh my goodness. And I, had, I caught sepsis. Oh my. My kidneys started to fail and I got a blood clot. And I also, I believe that I had a experience with a guardian angel. See, because that recovery process was so difficult, from the pain to learning to kind of walk again. At the time, I knew the steps were baby steps. As horrible as it was, I'd love to do it again mm-hmm. because it was so empowering from being bedbound and everything going wrong to then getting up and getting to where I am just yeah. now. I feel that the, those, certainly the five weeks before I got um, discharged from hospital, I think about that mm-hmm. quite a lot because it was a, a tough five weeks, but it was amazing five weeks because mm-hmm. every day it was slow, a slow but process, you, but it but was, was progress worth it. there. Yeah, absolutely. So is that bizarre? I'd love to live a difficult time again. No, nope, not at all. <laughs> again, that sums you up to see, Lisa. <laughs> Best ever song lyric? Um, something inside so strong. Tune. Mm-hmm. Good choice. You've done this before. You're a total pro. What would be your desert island meal? Oh God! Right. <laughs> so you're asking me about meals, right? Uh-huh. I'm on steroids. That's just, that's our medication that we have to take to try and prevent our organs from rejecting. Okay. So a lot of people probably know steroids have increased hunger. Okay. So I'll be on steroids forever. Okay. Quite a, a relatively high dose. Right. So I could eat all day, every day. Right. I could eat a grown man under the <laughs> table, put a meal down and I'd eat a lot. So you're going to do one of these man versus food challenges? I, I can keep, see. <laughs> I keep saying to my friend, let's go like, you know, the place to do the steaks or the ribs or whatever. And we've never set a date for it yet, but I'm, I'm up for it. But <laughs> one particular meal... I honestly can't, I, can't, I, I couldn't choose can't one. Choose. I just love, love food. food. I love cooking food. Oh, do you? Trying new recipes, baking, anything. And as awesome. people people ask, like, when I went to a training day at my work, mm-hmm. um, 
someone says, anybody got any special dietary requirements? And a girl shouted out, Lisa, as long as there's more than enough to eat, that's only... <laughs> All the grub. Yeah, that's the only dietary requirement that Lisa has. <laughs> so unfortunately, I don't have one that's particular right, meal. That's alright, you don't need to meal. That's fine. <laughs> you know if I see her then. No. I used to be, but no now. No now. What is your favourite view? The sea. I'm very much a beach person. Are you? But it's the, the light blue sea and the white sand mm-hmm. that just does something. Yeah. Sparks something. But in saying that, because I've been climbing hills, mm-hmm. um, I think I might be enjoying like a, a high peak and yeah, looking out. Looking out over. Downwards. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we'll see what it's like at Ben Lomond, but currently mm-hmm. it is a beach view. Nice. Nice. What's the best advice you've ever received? Normally I'm the one that's given advice. I was just going to say. They're actually taking advice. Here, we'll turn it around. What's the best advice you can give anybody? Oh, see, that's what's in that book that that I had um, written. The best advice would be... Well, see, this is what my friends know that I say this. I say, get your great suit. Right. Okay. And by that, what I mean is, a lot of people hide their emotion, whether it's happy tears or sad tears. But I believe that we are meant to cry for a reason. Biologically, mm-hmm. we have to do that to release something. And even if that means crying on your own, in front of a program, or listening to a song, or you know when someone cries, right? Mm-hmm. And the first thing some somebody does is they cuddle them and they go, "Come on, come on, it's all right, it's all right." Or if a child cries, you go. Maybe even if it's if it's a boy. When you're a big boy, yeah. why are we always trying, trying to, to stop, stop that? Stop teaching yeah. anybody to hold back their yeah. emotions. So when my friends cry or I cry, I will then say, "I'm getting my great suit," or yeah. I say, "Just get your great suit," and I don't try and get them to stop. Nice. So that that's like that. that. And my pals, even some yeah, when they're crying now, no, they say no that. emotion is bad, and we kind of laugh about it now. Yeah, but that's. One bit of advice that I do say. I love Because building up your emotion can be quite dangerous, I think. That is very good advice. <laughs> Lastly, what is your favourite Scottish word or phrase? I say ganting a lot. Oh. Ganting. See, we're in Clamanninshire, right? So and when I started working in this area, there was quite a few words that I'd never heard before mm-hmm. people use, and I haven't heard what? that one. Ganting just means disgusting. Minging. Ah, so it's a bit like gads and like... Not where I'm from, but I'm sure in Edinburgh they say, oh, gads. Oh, really? And that means like... Grotty? Yes. Along those lines. Ganton. 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 Should you say Ganton? Ganton. <laughs> I say it fast. Ganton. <laughs> or I do like belter. Belter. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> what's the, I like to say, oh, yeah, beezer. What's that? See, I, had, I, see, I people uh, Glasgow in that, they don't know what that means. No. Like, you go, oh, yeah, beezer. Like, because you could say it if, like, somebody puts in an amazing meal uh-huh. and you go, oh, yeah, bees are, look at that. Or if you hurt yourself, oh. you jam your finger in a door, you go, oh, yeah, bees are, that was sore. <laughs> so you can use it in a few different so ways. To avoid probably, profanities. <laughs> yes, it's uh, a nicer word than a, than a swear word. <laughs> oh, yeah, bees are. Yeah, it was a uh, stecky that I'd never heard until I worked in club manager. You don't hear it that much. It was a lot when I was younger. Yes. People used to say it, but not so much now. <laughs> All these random words. <laughs> I love Scottish words. Yeah, me love too. Mm-hmm. Ganton. I've definitely never heard that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Ganton. Ganton. <laughs> a good one. Last question. Night in or night out? This moment in time is always a night out. Well, I think 
I did go out before years ago, but I kind of, even though I'm 28, I'm still living the kind of life of a 20 to 21 year old. Yeah. yeah. The clubbing days certainly are not over yet. Don't get me wrong, I do like a night in when I need to catch up on TV because mm-hmm. I don't have much time to watch TV, but because I spent so much time in bed prior to my transplant, mm-hmm. I've done enough nights in. Yeah, I bet. Night out for night me. Night out for you. Mm-hmm. What's the tune that's getting you on the dance floor? She's a belter. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, um, I, she's a belter. That's that, such a good one. What a way to mm-hmm. sum up you. <laughs> you know, the, the new Lewis Capaldi song, Someone You Love, mm-hmm. or Someone You Loved, um, GBX does a remix of that. Okay. So I'm I'm not overly into slow songs, because slow songs can make you feel a bit sad. Why would I want to feel sad when I could actually feel happy? And he's raved it up, so it's more dancey. Mm-hmm. But that, that, that Lewis Capaldi song, um, it focuses on organ donation. The music ah, video. It's I've a man right, whose okay. um, wife has passed away and they've donated her heart to this mother and the oh, little wow. child meets the man and just says, thanks for giving your wife's heart to my mummy. So, it's quite nice. It's quite I'll let you nice take song. it out. That sounds mm-hmm. wonderful. Well, on that note, Lisa, thank you so much for doing this. You've thank been you an absolute gem. <laughs> hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Braun the brave a podcast about people and their passions join us next time for more insight and inspiration from my wonderful guests bye for now